again, good morning to you. Um, we've been studying just for a couple of weeks, if you're new, this letter, this little bitty letter at the back of your Bible, uh, attributed to James, the half-brother of Jesus, his little brother, who becomes a, a major a leader in the church after uh, 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 Peter goes off onto the mission field. And so Acts 15, you see James there. The the subtitle that we have given to this study is The Works of Faith. And I recognize that can look a little oxymoronic to you, to works and faith together, particularly in light of what Paul says when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your works, lest anyone boast. I understand that. James is not contradicting or disagreeing with Paul. In fact, he's, he's literally saying what Martin Luther said later. Martin Luther will say that you and I are saved uh, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. It never comes alone. That is, when we believe something, when we truly believe something, we begin to act in light of what we believe. That is, if 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 you believe that uh, if you uh, put these ingredients together, then, then uh, it will make a cake that makes you a baker. Well, if you believe these truths about Jesus Christ, it makes you a follower of Christ. That's all that James is really saying is that there, there, as a result of faith, there are these works that accompany that faith. Not because you earn your faith or it makes you have faith is because you have faith, these works uh, come about in your life. And we looked two weeks ago at steadfastness as a work. What we meant by that is, in my translation, it says steadfastness. In some of your translations, it might say patience or perseverance or endurance. But they're trying to get at this word that has no English equivalent, hupomone, which is this idea that we stand up under a heavy weight, that suffering or trials uh, carry with them a heavy weight. And we need to learn to be able to stand up underneath them and not be devastated or destroyed by the trials that you and I go through. Last week, we said another work was wisdom. And and, uh, I know some of you struggle with the idea that wisdom can be a work, but it can in this way. We understand wisdom from God to be his perspective on the world that he created, on humanity and, its old, and humanity's ultimate goal for flourishing. But here's how it's a work. It's also the ability to live in light of that perspective. That is, if you have a perspective and you don't live in light of it, it's not your perspective, it's someone else's. But if it's your perspective, you begin to live your life under that reality. For example, we know the Bible teaches that at some point God is going to come back and make all things new. And so because he's going to make all things new, then any attempt you make to make things better here, that is, people in poverty get their needs met, people who who are being discriminated against to stand up for justice, you're not going to remove poverty and you're not going to remove injustice. But the acts in those ways is continuing to move the way in which history is going because that's your perspective. That's wisdom. Today, we're going to look at alignment. 
as another work. That is to bring our minds and our hearts into line with the mind and heart of God. Right in the middle of our text, just to show you and illustrate what James is talking about here, right in the middle of our text, in verse 17, a misquoted verse or a misunderstood verse is often in evangelical churches, really in all churches, but specifically evangelical churches, when it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Often, that verse is quoted when we talk about our prayers to God, that when something good happens to us, when he answers a prayer, then somehow we need to give credit to God because that gift is from God. And though that is true, that is not what James is talking about. He's not talking about any good gift, though it's true that if something good comes into your life, it is the result of God doing something. But James is talking about a specific gift. And it's the gift in this context of standing up under suffering, to endure suffering, to have patience in suffering, to live in that without it crushing your soul. And that is the good gift. When we typically pray... And if you listen to our prayers, they tend to be things like somebody's health is bad. Maybe it's your health that's bad, and you pray for that. Or that something, some endeavor that you're involved in would have success. Or, or, or somehow prosperity would come in your life. Or somehow you would be comforted, or someone else would be comforted, or there would be safety. And all those things are good things to pray about. But that's not what James is getting at here. James is talking about a specific prayer that God would enable you to stand up under the heavy load of a trial. What he's talking about is you and I have the opportunities in prayer to align our heart with his heart instead of ask him to align his will with ours. If you, if you listen to our prayers... If you look at our checkbooks, if you begin to examine our date books, you begin to notice that our hearts are out of a line, our lives are out of a line with God's desires. And so James wants us in these short verses to begin to contemplate what does it mean to align your life, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength with God, to be able to say yes and amen to God instead of yourself and notice sin. The metaphor that James uses in this passage to help us get our, our mind around this kind of alignment is pregnancy. You see it in verses 14 and 15. Listen. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, I love Eugene Peterson's The Message because it's a paraphrase of the New Testament in particular. And one of the things he's done is he's taken these two verses and paraphrased it in a way that just smacks us in the face. It gets our attention. And one of the ways is listen to what he says. He says, lust gets pregnant and has a baby called sin. And sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Eugene Peterson gets that from the idea that something that Robert Murray Machane said, an old uh, uh, 19th century preacher, 
who said that all sin begins as a little embryo in the heart. That is, long before an act or a word comes out of our mouths, something has happened in the heart first. The way the Bible puts it is out of the abundance of the heart, whatever's going on in there eventually comes out either in your mouth or in your actions. And James is saying that before we sin, something we believe, something we believe deep down in our heart is already there in an embryonic form. It literally is the one pregnancy that we want to see terminated. The embryo by which we sin. We know in the garden of, of, of the beginning of time and Adam and Eve are there, we recognize that long before they ate the fruit, they believed a lie. And so this morning, I, I want to give you three lies that our culture in particular, but even has come into the church that Christians believe. And because of these three lies, a lot of our misery, a lot of our struggle in this life is because we believe one or more of these lies. And of course, it's good to go see a physician who actually has a solution to the disease. I hope to give you one truth that if we believe it, it's a game changer. It changes everything. So first three lies and then one truth. The first lie that I think that we tend to hold on to and believe is that I can find happiness on my own. That if, that if God won't provide the happiness, the satisfaction in my life, I can do it on my own. There are things in my life that bring me happiness apart from God. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. The word blessed there is the same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Blessed are those that are poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. That word blessed can be translated as happy or satisfied. In fact, a lot of translations would say happy is the one instead of blessed. We don't tend to look at blessed in our culture today and have good definitions for it, but we understand whether I'm happy or not, whether I'm satisfied. A big theme of wisdom literature, which James is part of, it tends to be a lot like the Proverbs of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, James takes the same thing that you tend to see in Proverbs about happiness, the pursuit of it, and puts it in James when he uses blessed over and over again. And the way that wisdom literature tends to talk about the theme of pursuit of happiness is to talk about the opposite and say that misery comes from or results in the pursuit of happiness apart from God. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. One of the chief metaphors when God wants to, us to understand our relationship to him or the relationship of God's people to him, he talks about this metaphor of marriage. The the metaphor of marriage is that two have become one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, one new humanity. God institutes marriage in, in Genesis chapter 2, and those words are, are, are used. And then throughout the Bible, this theme 
of marriage being a pointer, a signpost, a metaphor for union with Christ. That's what the New Testament takes this idea of marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, and begins to talk about how marriage, in marriage, two people who come from two different backgrounds, two different families, two ways of living, become one, something totally new. It's not half of what one was and half of another, like our DNA. Instead, it's one new humanity, one new being. And that's the way in which God wants marriage to point, not just good marriages, but even bad marriages, to long for the marriage. That is, your marriage, those of you who are married, the best thing your marriage can be is a picture of the marriage, our relationship with God. At best, the best marriages can do is be a faint picture of that union. And you say, well, how about bad marriages? Even bad marriages make you long for a good one. But a good marriage is only a place to go, a placeholder for the thing. And that's why when you say, but I'm single, I'm single again, you haven't been left out. If, if the goal of marriage is the end of itself, we are going to give ourselves to, to making marriages great at EP. Though that is a laudable goal, it is not God's goal. God's goal is not that you have the best marriage on the planet. God's goal is that your marriage shows the world what a relationship between him and us are supposed to look like. That is, one way to know the best marriage is, is who's your biggest defender rather than your biggest accuser. That is, is, if you insult me, I can already tell you who's going to jump all over you. And if you insult my wife, I can already tell you that you've insulted me. Why? Because two have become one. It would be like me having a conversation with you about how bad my right arm is. I can't live without it. I mean, I can, but it isn't something you want. And so if you're single and you're longing for marriage, remember what marriage is. It's just a pointer. It's not the be-all, end-all. Otherwise, what hope is there in our society where over 50% now are single over the age of 18 than are married? The church is one of the last places where you see the majority of the people that attend are married in our culture. It's just a pointer. You can have the real thing and not have the pointer. It is, it is alike wanting the appetizer as the meal. Your marriage is not something to belittle or, or, or to miss. It's to celebrate how it represents the relationship between Christ and the church, but recognize it is the mere appetizer. One of the, the great tragedies of our culture in America is that we've turned appetizers into meals. You go to a restaurant now, one of the very first things you see are big appetizers. And you find people that are just ordering those and being satisfied. God does not want you satisfied with an appetizer. 
It was meant to be the four tiny little shrimps and the little cocktail sauce that's never enough because it makes you long for the main course. And the best marriages among us are meant to be appetizers for the main course and being satisfied to finding our happiness in marriage turns marriage into an idol. It turns it into sin because that's not its purpose. In the Song of Solomon, if you can bear uh, reading the Song of Solomon, how graphic it can be, one of the best thematic summaries in the Song of Solomon is this. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. One of the ways in which God talks about sin and he wants to get that concept across from you, he goes back to the metaphor of marriage. And he begins to talk about a way in which we betray marriage. And the way in which we betray marriage is we find alternative lovers to our spouse. So he calls sin spiritual adultery. In fact, in Hosea, he says, I give you a certificate of divorce. Why? Did you realize your God is a divorcee? In Hosea, he says, I give you, my people, a certificate of divorce. What's the charge? What have you been found guilty of? You have pursued false lovers. You have committed adultery. And that's why adultery is so offensive, not just to the marriage person, the person you're married to, not just to the marriage, but to the picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, Christ and his people. God promises happiness by changing our our loves, by changing our longings. We want to be like the hymn writer of Be Thou My Vision. You know how it goes. Thou and thou only what? First in my heart. God wants to not say you can't have other loves. He just wants to order them for you so that your love for him is first. C.S. Lewis has a great quote about God limited himself. When I was in college, I I was a freshman, and I took this course from this atheist. I wasn't a a believer. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. But I knew there was something wrong with what he said, and particularly as I I watched the Christians in the room debating. He asked this question, is God limited? Can God not do something? And, and all the evangelicals in the room raising their hand, no, 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 God can do anything he wants to do because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omnipresent, he can be anywhere and everywhere all at the same time. And so the professor asks this question, can God create a rock he cannot lift? It's a trap. And we fall into it every time. We overstate our case. God can and is limited, but it's self-limitation by his own character. We can't limit him. God self-limits himself because he cannot lie. He cannot repent because he has never sinned. His own character prevents him from doing those things, and that is a limitation. This is what C.S. Lewis said, and I think it's very helpful. He said, God has limited himself. God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. God has limited himself 
to never given us peace and happiness and satisfaction apart from himself because there's no way to get that. And so sin will incur when we love someone or something more than God himself. Anything that we are attracted to more than God is our functional savior. Because we're looking to that thing or that person to make us happy and satisfied. And that, tr- that, that kind of attraction can become a fatal attraction because sin is like a, an autoimmune disease. An autoimmune disease is a disease that tells the body to attack itself. And so sin begins to communicate to us to attack our own souls. I think that's why this is important when Tim Keller says that we don't just do sin. Sin does us. I'll explain that in a little while, but I just want you to understand it's not simply what we do, it's what we believe, it's what's down deep. Let me give you some examples of pseudo-saviors, things that we turn to, things that we think we have to have, things that we want, we desire, and we long, that when we give them the over-desire, when they become the ultimate things, then we're looking to them to give us our happiness and our satisfaction. And God says, anything that's like that, that is your Savior instead of Jesus. And one of the things that people turn to when things don't go well, when things, they're bored with life, when, when, when they're sad, when, when they're, they're unemployed and, 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 and discouraged, is that often they turn to self-medicate. And people self-medicate in so many different ways. Sometimes it, it's obvious drugs and alcohol, but it, it, can, be, it can be sex. It could be uh, uh, your computer screen at night when no one else is around and, and going to places that you should not go simply to self-medicate so you can go to sleep. This is what Albert Camus, who's a philosopher, said. He said, because I long for eternal life. He's recognizing God put within our hearts a desire to last. I went to bed with harlots and I drank Uh, for nights on end. I slept in the bliss, but I awoke with the bitter taste of the mortal state. What he's saying is, is that I self-medicate. I self-medicate with prostitutes and with drinking. And so I go to bed and I think I'm happy and satisfied, but I always wake up unsatisfied and unhappy. It does violence to our souls. Can I, can I, can I give you two evangelical idols? Acceptable sins. We, we tend to look at uh, sex and drugs and, and pornography as things that, yeah, we don't want to do those things. But, but can I give you two acceptable ones that we tend to think are okay, that aren't all that bad? Because we self-justify. We've got reasons for them. And the first one is gossip. We sometimes pretend that that's prayer. And sometimes we, we pretend it's, it's good for the other person that I talk about him with others. Somehow we have done mental gym, gymnastics to thinking that the way to draw people to ourselves, to draw into community with us, is to do violence to somebody else's soul. To speak about someone without the decency of speaking to that person you're talking about first. And the Bible says, most often only. And gossip is speaking about someone that 
damages their reputation or would hurt them if they were in the room. And so we're going to do it when no one else is around because we don't want to hurt them. In the end, here's the truth. This is why it's such violence to the soul. In the end, anybody who's a gossip, and all of us are, that's the whole idea of getting around the water cooler at work. What's the latest? Is that no one trusts a gossip. Because the truth is, if when I'm with you, and you're talking about someone else, I'm wondering, what are you saying about me when I'm not around? That's no different. That's no different than the man who has an affair on his wife and then ultimately marries the woman that he had an affair with. How in the world could she trust that man? Because if he's willing to cheat on his first wife, it should be that much easier to cheat on the second. That's why we don't trust gossips. It's because they're not trustworthy. Because they're taking the soul of another human being and they're violating it. They're bringing violence. Can I share another one with us? I know this feels uncomfortable because these are some of our favorites. How about greed? The evangelical favorite. That is, we think that if we hoard our resources, we're going to be safe. Or at least we're going to feel safe. Because our savings account, because our retirement fund, because of our investments, because of our equity in our homes, somehow we've convinced ourselves that's why we need to hoard our income. It's because if we, we pay off our mortgage, if we have enough for retirement, we won't be a burden to our children. And somehow this will prepare us for the long life after retirement. And though you may feel safer, that does not mean you are safer. There's a huge difference between feeling safe and being safe. Because if you're going to hoard, it will rob you of your generosity. And generosity is the bedrock for community. You and I cannot be in community and hoard our wealth. God meant those with a means to share with those who are lacking. In fact, the way Acts put it is they had no need among them. I can't put all of my money in myself while people are starving to death. I love Dick and Scrooge because I think it really hits home. The more Scrooge hoarded, the more miserable he became. And the more lonely he became because he was alone. Because he did not share. How about fame? Fame's a, a wonderful, a wonderful medication. Thinking that I'm somebody, if somebody knows my name, if somebody appraises me, if somehow people are talking about me. And maybe I'm only talking about me because I'm the one that's in front of people all the time. Maybe you're not like that. But we know from our celebrities that it's lonely at the top. And that it is better to have friends than it is to have fans. Because friends stay and fans flee. How about holding a grudge, the holy anger of a Christian? Reluctant to 
forgive for fear of giving more power or, or somewhere allowing them to think that we're letting them off. What I have found is people who hold grudges, all they do is keep themselves as victims because grudges eat away at the victim, not at the perpetrator. Frederick Bigner, who's a 20th century pastor, I love this because he's such a wordsmith. The way he says things just grab your, grab your heart. Listen to what he says about grudges. He says, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you're giving back in many ways, is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself and that the skeleton at the feast is you. That's so good. It's such a picture of what it means to hold a grudge against another person. That somehow you think, I think, that I'm punishing them. When in reality, the only person that's being eaten alive, the soul that's being uh, vandalized, is my own. Now you can rightly say at this moment, that sounds like a lot of do's and don'ts, Bruce. Is James all about the law? I thought at EP we're about grace and not law. The problem with that kind of thinking is that law and grace are two sides of the same coin. And you can no more separate the law that drives you to grace than you can from grace that takes you back to the law to describe what it means to be in Christ. You can't divide those two. They are meant to be together. And I understand that this might sound like it's fighting against you to not have grudges, to to not seek uh, 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 fame, to, to not gossip. Those all sound like do's and don'ts and rules. But I want you to know they're fighting for you. Because this is what it means to align your life with Christ, that you live very different than the world does. I know it doesn't feel like it. I'll argue you're right. It doesn't feel like alignment. It doesn't feel good. It didn't feel good when the doctor snapped my wrist. I understand. This is what N.T. Wright says. He says, if you are true to yourself, if you let your feelings be your guide instead of the wisdom of God, you will end up a complete mess. And we're messes. We're messes because we've allowed our feelings to drive the train rather than our faith. And that's just the first lie. The second one is suffering can only mean that God is against me. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Two common ways that we've looked at trials. One is that when I'm going through a hard thing, I assume that God is mad at me. God is against me. God wants my attention. Like Job. Remember when Job went through a series of trials, he's sitting at the gate and his friends come up to him and rather than encouraging him, hey, Job, Let us help you figure out what you've done wrong so that God can lift this after you confess your sins and repent. You remember the blind man in the New Testament? The blind man 
gets healed by Jesus. He's blind from birth. And so the disciples ask Jesus, Jesus, whose fault was it? The man or his parents? You remember what Jesus said back? He said, neither. Because this healing was for the glory of God. Well, if we're not putting ourselves on trial when we go through hard things, we're always putting God on trial. Somebody's got to be in the dock because nothing is going the way it should be. And so let's put God. That's what the Israelites did in the wilderness 10 times. It says that they go through life and they grumble against God. They complain about the lack of options on the menu of God. They've been getting manna every day. And so they're tired of it. It's kind of like the nine-year-old who comes to the table after mom has slaved all day about what is going to be putting on the table. And what does the kid say when he sees what's in front of him is, oh, yuck. We have never grown out of being nine years old. Not anymore about dinner, but about everything else. Look at the job. Oh, yuck. We look at the church. Oh, yuck. We look at our marriage. Oh, yuck. We've never grown out of being nine years old because we don't like what's on God's menu for us. Even C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis did this. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed about the death of his spouse, Joy. And so he said this, where is God when you're happy, when you have no sense of need of him? If you turn to him when you, uh, then with praise, you will be welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate. What you find is a door slammed in your face, a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you might as well turn away. He, you can feel him. He's He's dissatisfied with what's on the menu of his life by God. And so he's complaining. What I love is that C.S. Lewis kept writing. He wrote another book called A Problem of Pain. And he said, okay, it, it was a season of, of where I was griping and grumbling. And let me tell you what I think. Pain is the megaphone of God. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he speaks in our conscience. But shouts to us in our pain. And therefore, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Jesus uses two words in this text. In verses 13 and 14, one is the word tempted and the other word is trial. What's the difference? They are two different words in the original language. Because they, they are being used by two different people. Temptations are things the devil wants to use in order to break us, to distance us from God. That's, that's what a temptation, that's why it says God cannot tempt us. God doesn't want to drive us away. He wants to bring us close. So he takes the very same circumstances that can tempt you and used by the devil, but he uses that same exact circumstances, that same hard things, and he uses them to bring you to himself. And he calls those trials. It's like banana bread. I love banana bread. You know, I love a banana every day. And so sometimes I buy too many bananas. And bananas are one of the fruits that really go bad fast. And so I don't want a squishy brown banana. My wife has learned that over time, if you collect enough of those brown, gushy, gushy brownie, I mean, bananas, is you can make banana bread. You see, banana bread is made with overripe bananas. You eat, oh, nobody wants to eat an overripe banana. It's black on the outside and black on the inside. 
But you can take those and you can make something sweet and moist and beautiful. That's what God does with your trials. That's what he does with my trials is that the trial itself, it's not sweet. It's not good. It's not enjoyable. But God wants to do something beautiful to make us beautiful. And that's the second lie that we believe is that when something goes on in our lives that we don't like, when we don't like what's on the menu, that God has put on the menu for us, we complain. The third one is connected to that. And I'm not the problem. Somebody else is the problem. You know, that's what Adam and Eve said. They eat the fruit, they disobey God. And what's the first thing out of Adam's mouth when God says, where are you? That woman that you put in the garden, it's her fault. And then when God goes to the woman and says, what did you do? And, and she says, oh, come on, God, you put the serpent in the garden. I didn't put, her th- put him there. It's not my fault. And ultimately, they're blaming God. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. What is James saying? James is saying the only reason you and I ever sin is because we want to. You know, it's like Flip Wilson, long before many of you in here. The devil made me do it. James says, nope, there's nothing wrong with your chooser. It works perfectly fine. We Presbyterians who emphasize a lot about the sovereignty of God, one of the terrible implications or terrible impressions that we leave with people is that we have no choice in this world. That it's all worked out and we're just living it. That's not what James is saying here. There's nothing wrong with your chooser. You have free will. And the reason you do sin, the reason I do sin, is because I want to. That's what James says. Each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word desire there has a a prefix. And the prefix is epi. And what it, what it means is an, an over-desire, to take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing, and that's why we sin. We sin because we think it's going to make us happy, because it's going to satisfy some need that we have. It's what makes us willing to sin against God. And somehow we have justified it by saying, I have to have it. And James says, no, you don't. Let me give you the one truth, and then we're done. Jesus is the supreme Lord and Savior. Look at the verse 18. It is his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. When, when Thomas Melton, an old uh, writer, read that verse, he said, the biggest human temptation is to settle for too little rather than too much. What he's saying is that every sin is an attempt to be satisfied by something smaller than God, something less important, less significant. And when we settle for sin like that, that is an idol. So how do you break them? This is simple. Thomas Chalmers, who's an old writer, an older writer, he said the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show the soul an object even more beautiful. John Owen, who a a lot of people know that name, he's a Puritan writer, but he wrote a lot of books. And one of the books he wrote that people know is called The Mortification of Sin. And it's all about killing sin in your life. But he was dissatisfied with that book, so he wrote another book, less known. It's called The Glory of Christ. 
And in that book, he says, you want to mortify sin? You want to kill sin? Look at Jesus. And you say, that sounds so simplistic. No, it's not. It's hard work. Because we want to look at ourselves. We want to look to our false uh, saviors rather than him. And what Owen's does, Owen does in that book is he has, he has these meditations on the person and work of Christ because he wants us to fall in love with the beauty of Christ. That's why David says in Psalm 27, there is one thing I would ask of God. Amazing, the king of Israel has got one thing he wants from God, that I would behold his beauty. That, my friend, is alignment. Alignment isn't by grit and strength to make yourself into the image of Christ. But it is that your affections change from your pseudo-saviors to the Savior. What specifically makes Jesus the most beautiful being in the cosmos? The clearest picture I know of the beauty of Christ is the moment when his beauty was marred the most, the cross. And do you know on the cross, he gives his own prayer of alignment? And I know a lot of people want to go to the garden, give something, not my will, but thy will be done. But there's actually one on the cross that's even more jarring to hear. On the cross, while all these people are jeering him, while he's bleeding from the head and the wounds of his body, while he's dying and he says, I'm, I'm thirsty, he cries out, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them they don't even know what they're doing here. That's alignment. Do you see the beauty of Christ yet? If you do, how could we turn to something so small as a false idol? What grieves me most when I sin is that I mar that beauty, that I tell God that this is more beautiful than him. He's the only beauty that truly satisfies our hearts. Anyone can have this beauty. How? Renounce your sin and take Jesus, the beautiful Savior. Do you know what genuine community looks like? This is what we hope to see at EP and ever grow in. We're growing in this area in so many different ways through our renewed groups. The, one of the one ways that we can do that is to do two things in community, defines community. The first one is help one another see the supreme beauty of Christ. That's our chief responsibility, is to show the beauty of the person and work of Christ. And then secondly, is to call one another to kill sin by aligning our desires, our longings, our, our will with His twin realities and purposes of genuine community is that we're lifting up Christ for everyone to see the beauty and at the very same time calling us to to leave all of the false lovers, all of the adulterous relationships that we've had and come to him. That is community. And when we do that for one another, we're participating in genuine community with one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you look at your people who have acted adulterous, who have loved and sought satisfaction and happiness apart from you. 
We have blame shifted and tried to communicate it's not our fault. And when we've gotten ourselves into a mess, we have said that you are against us. Or we've complained against you for giving us this menu. Help us to see this and believe this one truth. That Jesus is beautiful. And he's beautiful because he has forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.